worship this uh, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, and that's going to take us through the rest of the summer. Uh, this is a great series, uh, One Lifetime, Limited Resources, Eternal Priorities, and I know you're going to enjoy it, so be here Wednesday night to get your booklet at 7 o'clock. Uh, Brother Sidney White's going to be teaching the first lesson. Uh, Amy and I tomorrow are celebrating our 25th anniversary. Can you imagine it? Uh, never, never thought that that would come so quick, right? And Amy was 11 when we got married, and so she's uh, now in her 30s, and, and God bless her. But uh, now we get to go up uh, for a couple of days to Canada at the end of the week. And so Brother Sidney is graciously uh, accepted to teach the lesson this week, Stewarding Life. And we're having a fun time. Uh, we have all the kids in town this week. Dawson's here with his girlfriend, Kenzie, if you haven't seen uh, Dawson back. And it's good to see them this week. And we're uh, doing some fun things together. And it's, it's so unique how God uh, has shaped our family to try to find an activity where Cody and Michaela, who've been married for two years, will enjoy it just as much as Sophie, who's six, right? Go figure how you're going to find an activity for that. And so we're trying one out. Uh, we're going to do some river rafting. And we figured that if nothing else, Sophie will get splashed and she'll be happy. So there we go. So we're going to try that out. But it's going to be a fun week. And thank you for all of you and your well wishes. Well, we're in the final week of this series called The Religion of Enough. And we have seen how the pursuit for enough is really everywhere around us. Uh, there are people right beside you every day who are trying to be good enough in so many things. They're trying to be good enough uh, as an employee or as a spouse uh, they're trying to be good enough as a citizen. There are also people around you who are trying to get enough, right? They're trying to get enough stuff to make them happy. They're trying to get enough to be enough. Last week, we talked about how there are people trying to grow enough. And we looked at the Tower of Babel and, and the philosophies of religion that tell people, listen, if we could just do this, we could get to God. But as we've seen, none of those enoughs ever make any of us enough. There is none enough, no, not one. And of course, another way to say it is there's none righteous, no, not one. Here's what's weird. Enough and righteous are the same thing in different rappers. Now, I said in first service uh, that there are religious rappers and there are secular rappers, and I figured that at least somebody would get the joke, but nobody in the entire service got the joke. So I had to explain it. When you have to explain uh, what a secular rapper is to people who are over 50, they still don't get it. So I tried to name some rappers, like, you know, the religious rapper Lecrae, secular rapper 50 Cent. Nobody still got it. So uh, at least we have some people who know what that is here this morning. But uh, enough and righteous are the same thing in different containers. And uh, today we're going to uh, come at this from the other side of things because grace enough really does mean enough. Good enough doesn't, get enough doesn't, grow enough doesn't, but when we say grace enough, there really is enough. And when we have God's grace, we actually can be made enough or be made righteous through the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for us. Now, grace has been called all sorts of things by all sorts of people, and rightly so, because grace is actually what sets Christianity apart 
from all belief systems in the world. There is no belief system in the world that has grace except Christianity. And as we look at it this morning, uh, we're going to be reminded there's nothing else like it anywhere. Our text today is in Titus chapter 2, if you want to start heading that direction. Titus chapter 2, and we're looking forward to some things coming up in these next few weeks. Uh, Don't forget our next steps uh, are going to happen again on August 18th. And we're going to be offering class 101, class 201, and class 301, hopefully, uh, that night. And if you don't know what that is, uh, ask uh, one of our hostesses in the lobby, and they'll help you out with that as we get closer to date. Also, ladies, don't forget, ladies' retreat coming up in September, and make sure you get the info and sign up for that. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 11, for the grace of God. So there it is. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men and all women. I added that just to help you out. Uh, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. You know, grace is amazing in so many ways. One of the things that grace uh, stands out for is that grace doesn't excuse sin, but it still treasures the sinner. And true grace is actually shocking. Uh, It's shocking when someone that we feel couldn't possibly deserve it gets it. That's when it shocks us. You're like, well, okay, I've got grace and I know I'm undeserving. But deep inside, sometimes we feel like maybe we are a little deserving. And then when God offers grace to somebody that we don't think deserves it, uh, then we kind of flip out. And we're going to talk about that this morning because uh, we forget sometimes how undeserving we truly are. And uh, that's how we'll start our talk this morning. We say this, it's not about deserving. It's not about deserving. The notes are in your bulletin if you want to follow along with us today. It's not about deserving. When you think about it, the gospel of Jesus is not at all what we would come up with on our own. Uh, in fact, it's completely opposite of the religion of enough, uh, beginning with this admission that we aren't enough. Uh, we saw in the first week of the series this story that Jesus told uh, <clears throat> about this religious teacher, this Pharisee, and uh, he stood up to pray publicly and was like, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, and I do this for you, and I do this for you, and I do this for you. And I especially thank you that I'm not like this publican standing over there. Uh, He's a real rotten guy. Thank you that I'm not like him. And then the publican uh, wouldn't even look up to heaven, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's this unique story because uh, Jesus says that he ignored the fancy religious teacher, and he turned to the ordinary sinner who pleaded for mercy. And you would certainly think that man would have to clean up his act before applying for an audience with the holy God. 
And yet we find throughout the Bible that God always shows preference toward real people over good people. In fact, Jesus said that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't feel like they need to repent. If you see yourself as deserving, there's no grace available for you. Grace doesn't depend on what we've done for God. It depends completely on what he's done for us. In one of his last breaths that Jesus would take before dying on the cross, uh, you remember that Jesus forgives the thief who is hanging beside him, knowing full well that the thief was only converting out of fear. Right? He's only converting out of fear. The thief was never going to get baptized. He was never going to attend church. He's never going to study the Bible. He's never going to make amends to all the people he had stolen from. He was the most unlikely candidate for grace. He really was. And he only converted out of fear. Now, how many of you, when you came to Jesus, uh, you came to Jesus and there was no fear involved? You're like, oh, I'm not afraid at all of eternal death. I'm not afraid of all of hell. I just really want a relationship with Jesus that involves sanctification and glorification and a righteousness and all these other words. No, we came to Jesus out of fear. Right? We understood we're condemned. Jesus said, hey, he that believeth on me is not condemned. Right? And we, when we figure out we're condemned, it upsets us a little bit. Yeah, the summer of 1984, I was 12 years old, and our church, uh, all summer long on Friday nights, they showed these videos uh, that really blew my mind about the tribulation uh, and the end times, and one was called Thief in the Night. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's probably on YouTube somewhere. And the thing that would amaze you now is just how bad the acting was, right? <laughs> it's like you go back and watch, whoa. Like, wow, we act better than that in our, you know, church drama presentation. Um, but we have better videography. Um, but there was Thief in the Night, and then there was another one after that, I don't remember the name. And then there was Prodigal Planet, where it's during the tribulation, and they're rolling around in these rovers trying to escape uh, people who are putting the mark of the beast on them. It was a pretty crazy thing. But by the end of the summer... Every night, you know, I was worried. And they showed this film on a Friday night in August. And a Saturday night, I couldn't go to sleep for the life of me. I was worried that I was going to get left behind in the tribulation. And I was so scared. And I went in at like 11 o'clock and woke my parents up. And, you know, I'm glad my, didn't, my dad didn't have a gun. He has a gun now, like beside his bed. He clearly would have shot me back then. Uh, but he didn't have all that handy, so praise God for that. Um, but it woke him up in the middle of the night like, I'm not sure that I'm going to heaven, and I'm really scared. And uh, so they prayed with me, and, and I made sure of my salvation. Why did I do it? Because I was scared to death, right? And it could be that when you got saved, you got saved out of fear too. But that's how the thief on the cross got saved. He was scared. He was an unlikely candidate for grace which makes him exactly the one Jesus would forgive. And when he said, Lord, remember me, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, if you go out to a crowd, all right, go down to the fair, uh, go to the mall, <clears throat> go to a football game, 
Go to Times Square, wherever you go. Go out in the crowd, and you start asking people, hey, what do you have to do to get to heaven? Okay? A bunch of them won't even talk to you, but a huge percentage of them who do talk to you will tell you you have to be good, you have to be deserving, you have to give to the poor, you have to go to church, you have to be baptized, whatever it is, they're going to tell you. The fact is, the first thing we have to realize to come to God is we are undeserving. Right? We're undeserving. And the prayer we need to pray is help. It's a one-word prayer. Help. And when we pray help, Jesus runs to meet us. He runs to meet the undeserving prodigal. He goes out to seek the lost sheep. And it's not about deserving. See, grace costs everything for the giver and nothing for the recipient. It costs Jesus everything. Look at it again in Titus 2, 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Grace costs everything for the giver and nothing for the recipient. It's always free of charge. No strings attached. And as we read in our text, it has appeared to all people. Now let's talk about this second part. It can't be offered until it's accepted. Okay, so grace can't be offered until it's accepted. Now, one of my favorite Christian authors is uh, Philip Yancey. And Philip, uh, in one of his books, tells the story of a pastor friend of his who was battling his 15-year-old daughter. And uh, the parents knew that she was staying out late at night. She was using birth control. She hadn't bothered to come home. And, and the parents had tried these various forms of punishment, but nothing was working. And the daughter constantly lied to them and deceived them. And when they confronted her about it, she tried to turn the tables by saying, this is your fault for being so strict. And, and so there was kind of this thing going on, and, and uh, still it's hard to raise teenagers, those of you uh, who are parents of teenagers. Well, this, this pastor is telling this story to Philip, and he said, I remember standing inside the living room window of the house, and inside their living room by the front door, uh, they had a stained glass window. And he said, I remember staring out in the darkness and waiting for her to come home. And I felt such rage. I was so angry. And he's like, inside, I, I wanted to be like the father of the prodigal son, where I'm weeping and crying. But I was just furious with my daughter for the way she was manipulating us and then twisting the knife to hurt us some more. And of course, she's hurting herself more than anyone. And he said, I, I felt like the way God did when the Old Testament prophets expressed God's anger. Because the people, the, the people of God, the Jews, they knew how to wound God. And he cried out in pain through his prophets. But then he said this. He said, Philip, I must tell you, though, when my daughter came home that night, or rather the next morning, I wanted nothing in the world so much as to take her in my arms and to love her and to tell her I wanted the best for her. I was a helpless, lovesick father. And now when he thought about God, he held up the image of the lovesick father that was miles away from the stern Old Testament figure he had once envisioned. And, and there's this broken man standing in front of this window gazing into the dark, and it's Jesus' depiction of the waiting father. Heart sick, 
abused, yet wanting above all else to forgive and to start things new. And the father of the prodigal, you remember this, he said, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Here's the hard part though, and, and this is where people really struggle with grace. Grace can't be offered until it's accepted. It can't be. The people who need grace the most sometimes are the ones who push it away aggressively. And they reject grace because of, of guilt or shame or pride. But we can't offer grace to anyone else in our lives until we accept it. And grace can only be accepted through honesty and humility. I can't love God or anyone else until I allow God to love me. I want to tell you the first foundational truth about God is this. God made me to love me. God made me to love me. God made you to love you. In the New Testament, as Jesus comes on the scene in his public ministry in three years, he speaks to thousands of people. And at one time or another, he has hundreds of followers uh, who follow him, even some for a short time, some for a long time. Uh, then he has 12 disciples, and in that group, there are three who are closest to him. And you guys know it's Peter, James, and John. You remember that? Now, out of that three, though, the disciple who was called the beloved was John. And if you asked John about his primary identity in life, he wouldn't have said, I'm a disciple, I'm an apostle, I'm an evangelist, I'm an author of one of the Gospels. He would say, I am the one who Jesus loves. I'm the one who Jesus loves. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John, that's what he called himself. He never mentioned himself by name in those instances. He would say, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, here's an interesting thought. And I want you to think about this just for a second. Could it be that Jesus had enough love for all the disciples and all the followers and all the crowd and all the communities where he went? But John was the one who received his love. John was the one who accepted his grace. You know why John called himself the one who Jesus loved? Because he allowed Jesus to love him. There are people who don't allow Jesus to love them because they say, I'm not worthy. And that's a fact. We aren't. But he wants to love us. He wants to reach down and inject grace into our lives. So we have to accept the grace. And there are a lot of things that will keep you from allowing God to fully embrace you. There are things that will make you keep God at a distance. And, and they aren't all from issues like pride and guilt. Now, some of them are simply about the mathematics of grace. Now, others have called it the scandal of grace. And I'll tell you what I mean, because uh, the mathematics of grace does not make sense. I want you to think about this for just a minute. Jesus said that a widow's pennies are worth more than a rich man's millions. Right? Now, how many of you took consumer math? Anybody? Business math? Some kind of general math? Uh, did they teach you in consumer math that some pennies are worth more than millions of dollars? 
right? Common Core wasn't even that bad, right? And they taught you that millions are worth millions and pennies are worth pennies and there's no in-between. Jesus said a widow's pennies are worth more than a rich man's millions. You know, God, he goes in, you're reading along in Genesis and everything's going good. There's Abraham and he's got faith. And then there's Isaac and pretty good guy. And then God comes along and Isaac's got two sons. God chooses the deceiver, Jacob, over the dutiful son who went out and hunted for his father. Right? Now how many of you, if your son went out and hunted for you and brought you back some game, you'd be like, yeah. Right? You, we're in Idaho, right? Are we in Idaho today? Or we, have we moved to Massachusetts? Okay, so, so we relate like Esau, good. Jacob, bad. Right? Who did God choose? Jacob. God chooses Jacob. And then God gives superpowers to this juvenile delinquent Samson, who all he wants to do is go chase girls and kill lions and drink and touch dead stuff and do all the things God told him not to do. Then God comes along and makes Solomon into the wisest man who ever lived, even though Solomon is the direct result of David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. See, God does things in a way that disturbs us, and the math doesn't add up. And I want you to consider one of the parables Jesus told in Matthew chapter 20. And if you want to turn there, we'll look at it in just a minute. Jesus uh, told this story about a farmer, a guy who owned a vineyard. And the farmer goes out to hire people to work in his vineyard. And, and some of them, uh, he went out to the market, he'd go, okay, you guys want to work today? Come on, we're going to go work. And it's sunrise at 6 o'clock. And uh, so he hires all these people to work, and some of them clock in at sunrise. Some of them clock in at morning coffee break. Right? What time's morning coffee break? Anybody? What time's morning coffee break? 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. How many of you morning coffee break is like every 10 minutes during the morning? Okay. <laughs> How many of you, like if somebody brought you a Dutch Brothers at 7 o'clock, you'd drink it, and then at 8 o'clock, you'd drink it, and at 9 o'clock, you'd drink it, and at 10 o'clock, you'd die. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Now, Brent Mai drinks like a gallon of coffee every day, straight black. Uh, I think he has like a coffee maker in his tractor where he can just keep filling the, <laughs> keep filling the thermos. So, uh, but anyway, the farmer goes out, and he's like, okay, we're going to hire you. Then he hires some more at morning coffee break. Uh, at lunchtime at noon, he goes and hires some more. At afternoon tea, he goes and hires some more. And then at 5 o'clock, an hour before quitting time, he goes and gets these guys to come and work. Now, if you have a, a job and you're a good employee, how frustrating would it be to you? You've worked all day. <clears throat> Your hands are dirty. you got calluses. You've got dirt all over your clothes. Uh, you've been working all day, and here comes clean-cut Bob into the office, 5 o'clock. He hasn't touched a piece of work all day, and he's whistling, and he's happy. And at quitting time, when the closing bell sounds, you get paid, right? And clean-cut Bob gets paid the same wage you do, right? Now, this would tick you off. 
because you were built by the American dream. You were built by secular humanism. You were built by a world of ungrace. That's how we're raised. And now the boss decides at payroll time that the guys who had been there for 12 hours toiling in the blazing sun we're going to get the same thing as the fellows who hadn't even broken a sweat, the one-hour guys. They were going to receive the exact compensation. And the economics of this story are atrocious. They ticked everybody off. When Jesus told this story, the Jews got ticked off because it made absolutely no sense. And by the way, that's exactly why Jesus told it. That's why Jesus told all his stories. They had meaning. They still have meaning today. Jesus was giving a parable about grace. He says, listen, grace can't be calculated like a day's wages. Grace isn't about finishing last or first. Grace isn't about counting. Grace can only be received. And it must be received if we ever want to author it, offer it to others. Look at this story, Matthew 20. Verse 11, and when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, these last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? And the employer in the story didn't cheat the full day work workers. They got exactly what they were promised. But they became discontented because of the mathematics of grace. They couldn't accept that their boss has the right to do what he wanted with his money even if it meant paying lazy scoundrels 12 times what they deserved. You know what's ticked people off all through the centuries of time? The mathematics of grace. Jesus told the Pharisees, go and learn about mercy. Remember this guy Jonah? Jonah in the Old Testament? God calls him and says, go preach to Nineveh. He hops a boat the opposite direction. And a storm comes up, and, and Jonah tells the guys, throw me in the sea, and all of a sudden this big fish comes up and swallows him. He's down inside the fish's belly for three days and three nights, and he starts to praise God, like, God, don't leave me here. I'm really sorry. I messed up. Give me mercy. I really need mercy. The fish spits Jonah up on the shore, Jonah makes a three days journey in one day. He pops into Nineveh, looking and smelling like dead seaweed. Right? He preaches an eight-word message, and 120,000 people repent. Right? Jonah is the greatest crusade preacher in history. Right? D.L. Moody, nah. Billy Sunday, nah. Uh, Louis Giglio, no. Okay, Louis Palau, nah. Billy Graham, nah. Jonah. Jonah preaches an eight-word message. How many want to go to Jonah's church? Right? He preaches an eight-word message. 120,000 people 
get immediately on their knees and say, God, we repent, we need your mercy. They tear their clothes and put dirt on their head. And Jonah's like, this is awesome, God. You did such a good thing. You gave mercy to all these people. No. Jonah's ticked off. He's like, God, how dare you give these people mercy? Right? Does anybody remember where Jonah was like 36 hours before? In the middle of the belly of a fish saying, God, I need your mercy. And now he's in Nineveh. The whole city's repented. And he's like, God, I'm so mad that you gave them mercy. This is the story of us. We are more than happy for God to give us mercy, but we don't want him to give mercy to that guy. We don't think that those people deserve God's mercy, and they, you, we would be exactly right. None of us deserve mercy. God does not dispense wages to us. He dispenses gifts. He dispenses grace. We aren't paid by merit. If we were paid on the basis of fairness, we'd all end up in hell. And so we have to realize that we are receiving grace from God just to be in his family. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And when people struggle to forgive others, can I tell you it's usually because they haven't fully accepted God's grace for themselves when we see the reality of our situation, how completely undeserving we are and how far God stretched to save us, how can we not forgive others in light of all that God has forgiven in us? I'm always moved by this quote from C.S. Lewis. Such a good quote. He said this, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Let's talk about this third part. It overcomes every type of pain. Grace is there to overcome every type of pain. And I mentioned a while ago that we really are born into a world of ungrace, and we are taught uh, from primary school, even from being a toddler, you're taught this world of ungrace, the uh, economics of the American dream. And we're taught that the early bird gets the we're taught that. We're taught no pain, no, right? That's a newer one. Uh, Benjamin Franklin came up with that in the 1700s. Uh, there's no such thing as a free ride, yeah, lunch, whatever, right? Uh, there is Uber, but there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, you get what you pay for. Okay, there's probably a couple of sayings. So if you're saying a different thing, it's okay. It just means you came from a different part of the country. Uh, you have to know the rules and live by them. You have to work for, for what you earn. Uh, you, have a, you have to have a desire to win. You have to insist on your rights. And, and we're educated this way. Now, because of that education, we want people to get what they deserve. Nothing more, nothing less. But yet, if we listen to the heart of the gospel, we know that we didn't get what we deserved. I deserve punishment, and I got forgiveness. I deserve wrath, but God gives me his love. I deserve hell, and I get heaven. 
And so our earthly education tells us all these things and tries to inform us even about our pain, especially pain that's deserved. Because when we make horrible choices and we have pain and we have scars and we go through disappointments and difficult rejections, we sometimes feel like our pain is a result of our choices. I want you to know this morning, the most unforgivable offenses are still no match for the unlimited grace of God. Because we deserve much worse than we get. I love what it says in Romans. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And yet there's a catch in this scandal of grace. There's a catch to the mathematics of grace. Uh, see, there are people who've grown up knowing about God's grace, and they choose to trample on it. Okay? And it, and it kind of goes, we create our own economics. Uh, for kids who grew up Catholic, it's like, okay, go do whatever you want, and then you go to confession. And confession is the reset button. Right? So I can go do whatever I want, whatever I want it, and then I just go into confession, and voila, it's all gone. Right? Now, for kids who grew up in Christian environments, 1 John 1, 9 is the same button. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What that means is I can go do whatever I want this week, and then I just come and 1 John 1, 9 it. Right? It's the same button. It's the same thing. We are willing to trample on the grace God's given us to do what feels good to us in the moment. David called this not only sin, but if you look at uh, Psalm 19, he, he called it a presumptuous sin. It means I know the line's there. I know God doesn't want me to do it. I know I'm not supposed to cross it, and I cross it anyway because I know God will forgive me, right? This is how we sometimes trample on the grace of God, and, and we go through this scandal of grace knowing that we're wounding the Savior again. And here's the thing. If we want God to cover pain with grace, we have to be willing to empty ourselves of this presumption, this self-will. There's such a great picture of this in John 8. It's one of my favorite Bible stories. You might remember the incident. Uh, they were in the temple courts, Jesus and the disciples, and this group of Pharisees and teachers busted through the group, dragging this woman. And they drag this woman in and throw her in the dirt in front of Jesus. And uh, she cowers in shame, and she's trying to cover herself. She's humiliated. She's terrified. And uh, the Pharisees said, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act by the way, the Pharisees didn't really care about the woman or her crime. Uh, they're just trying to show up Jesus. By the way, where was the man? Just throw, I thought I'd throw that in. They're trying to set this trap for Jesus. Here's what it was. Moses' law required death by stoning if you're caught in adultery. But the Roman law supposedly would not allow Jews to carry out executions. And so was Jesus going to obey Moses or Rome? What's he going to do? Well, in that moment of tension, you may remember what he did do. Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. Now, this is the only time in the, the time period of Jesus that shows Jesus 
as a human being writing anything. And he writes on the sand, so we have no idea what he wrote because it blew away. Every time he'd write a word, a few more Pharisees would file away. See, when the crowd showed up that day, they assumed what we assume. Our education of ungrace teaches us, and it taught them that there are two types of people, guilty and righteous. That's what they assume. They show up that day, they're like, there's guilty people like this woman, there's righteous people like us. We're the accusers. And because we're accusers, we're righteous. Jesus bends down and writes again. People keep leaving. Finally, there's some left, and Jesus says, He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone at her. And then he stoops down and writes some more. And one by one, all the accusers slipped away. Nobody left but Jesus and the woman. Jesus says, woman, where are thine accusers? There's none left. Jesus says, go and sin no more. And in that moment, Jesus replaced the two categories that everybody assumes. See, we assume there's, uh, there's guilty and righteous. But Jesus said it's not what it is. There are sinners who admit guilt, and there are sinners who deny guilt. That's what there is. There's sinners who admit guilt, there's sinners who deny guilt. If you are a sinner who admits guilt, God's grace will always be enough for your pain. And if you're a sinner who denies guilt, you have left no opening in your heart for God to fill it with his grace. And if you demand that God give you only what you deserve, he certainly will. But if you empty yourself of your way, God can fill you with his grace again and again. And unless a flaw comes to light, it can't be healed. When you're real about your flaws, God will never waste a pain in your life. Whether your pain is caused by a bad choice or by a bad person or by a horrible circumstance, God will always use your pain for his glory if you'll admit your guilt. But there are people who go through life refusing to admit guilt, always deflecting, always blaming. It's always somebody else's fault. And until you admit who you really are inside. God's grace cannot come down and touch your life. I want to talk about this last part as we close. Now, this is so powerful. As we return to Titus chapter 2, I want you to see this. Grace teaches us how to be like Jesus. Grace is what teaches us how to be like Jesus. Look at Titus 2 again. It, not only did it tell us that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. But then it tells us this. Grace teaches us, verse 12, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Grace is what teaches us the Christian life. Grace teaches us. It's administered by the Holy Spirit into the heart of the believer. And grace always leaves results Right? When grace comes down to your life, something changes. And you look back at your life, you're like, two years ago, that 
that's where I was, and grace has changed me and shaped me. It's not about me, it's about God's grace. Grace has taught me to deny ungodliness, and grace teaches me to deny worldly lusts. And grace is what teaches me to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. And there are things that when you first came to Jesus that you did or you thought or you said that grace came in and taught you. How did it teach you? Through the Holy Spirit whispering in your heart. This doesn't fit you anymore. Those words don't fit your life anymore. You're now bought by Jesus. You're now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is now a temple of God. And grace comes in and teaches you. We learn to focus on eternity, to look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let's finish by saying this. And I think you know this already, but we should say it today. Real Christian living can never be accomplished through fleshly efforts. Can't be. But when we're fully submitted to God and, and we admit our guilt, he shapes us through grace into the image of his son. He makes us to be like Jesus in character. We've seen today some of the things that grace does in our lives, and there are so many. Couldn't cover them all. Grace shows us that salvation isn't about deserving. Grace has to be accepted before it's offered. Grace overcomes every type of pain. Grace teaches us to be like Jesus. Why? Because grace is enough. No human effort is enough. No amount of stuff is enough. No amount of human intellect is enough. But grace is always enough. There's only one thing that melts unforgiveness. It's grace. What about you today? As we finish this sermon in this series, I want to ask you a question. Are you a sinner who denies or a sinner who admits? See, when you admit, you open the door for amazing more than enough grace. But when you deflect and you blame and you push away, and when you don't admit what's really going on in your own heart, there's no grace for that. It is, it's just so amazing because God's grace is fully sufficient. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And yet, when I refuse to open my heart to my own guilt, there's no grace. So God may be speaking to you today about returning to the place of grace. Maybe you've been living in a world of ungrace. Maybe you're like, I just want people to get what they deserve. Can I tell you, you don't want that? Because if people get what they deserve, so do you. You know what you deserve? Same thing I deserve. A place in the lake of fire for eternity. But God commendeth his love toward us. In that, while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ.
You know, if we would confess our guilt, if we would forsake our guilt, if we would admit who we really are, God's grace is more than enough. Let's bow together.